0: Welcome back to the Q podcast. This is Gabe Lyons and we're continuing our dialogue and conversation with Dr. Greg Thompson today around what does it mean for the church to show up and be faithful in our time. We've really categorized some of this discussion into practices. What does it mean for us to practice faithfulness in a time where things around us are changing and where we might not understand where the culture's going, but there are some things we can go back to that anchor us, that have always anchored the church. And these practices are ways for us to kind of get handles around what does it look like for the church to move forward in any space and time, no matter what's happening around us. And so this idea of faithfulness plays out in so many different ways. And today we're talking about what does it look like to cultivate virtue. The fourth practice is one that brings us back to what does it mean to be a virtuous person, a virtuous people? What does it mean for us to pursue the kind of daily habits that help us become all that God's designed us to be? You know, it's been said that if you're not growing, you're dying. And growth is something you have to be intentional about. It's not something that just happens to you. You actually have to make conscious effort and steps towards growth. And today we're going to hear Dr. Greg Thompson share with us more about what does it mean for us to form ourselves. And to be reminded that many times we're formed by forces outside of ourselves that we need to be aware of. So what does it mean for us to cultivate virtue as we live out these practices in our daily life? What does it mean for us to cultivate virtue as we live out these practices in our church, in our families and in our daily lives? Listen now with me as we listen to Dr. Greg Thompson share his thoughts on formation.
1: How do we grow? How do we grow? And this is a question about formation. About what it means to become the fullness of what we are meant to be as human beings. And it's very important that we take this question about formation seriously because the work of being a faithful Christian presence is not something that we simply are. It is something that we become. We need to be formed. And it's also important that we take this seriously because so many of our neighbors are asking questions about formation. We live in an age that continues to long for human perfectibility. But to have no idea how, how is it that we are to grow now in our own age, we see two different types of formation, two different models that are incredibly prominent. And it's important that the Christian church understand these. The first is what you might call the therapeutic model of formation. Now this account is really driven by contemporary positive psychology and it views the goal of formation as human happiness. The goal of formation is human happiness. And because of this, it says that the path of formation is human self-knowledge, this cultivation of insight, that we have to understand our desires, what we desire and why, that we have to learn strategies for for pursuing those desires and removing things from ourselves and from our lives that that diminish the possibility of those desires, and that the purpose of human life is to pursue one's path. And you see this everywhere. This therapeutic model of formation is fundamental to how so many of our neighbors and so many people in the church think. Now, in contrast to this, it's important that we recognize another model, which is what I'm going to call the technocratic model of formation. The technocratic model of formation. Now, the the key insight here is that it's not fundamentally about the cultivation of inner life. It's it's about the cultivation of social skills, about learning certain kind of social skills, certain kinds of mastery. And so the goal is not happiness. It's something like effectiveness. And so to become a a person with, with certain kinds of technical knowledge, Required for, for very complex tasks. Now, this is the model of formation that is employed in so many business schools and public policy schools and medical schools. This is how we form people. It's a technocratic model of formation largely driven by management theory. And so the path to, to formation is the cultivation of skill. The cultivation of skill in which we learn how to both see and solve problems. Look, these are so important. Both of these models are formation because we do need to cultivate insight about ourselves and we do need to cultivate skills through which we can serve the world. And many people in the church are deeply embedded in this model of formation. But it's important that we remember that this is not yet a fully theological account of formation, a fully Christian theological account of formation, because it differs from these two in both the goals of formation and the path and the goal of formation in the Christian tradition is love to love God and to love our neighbors. The whole purpose of what we are doing in our efforts of formation is the goal of love. And over the course of Christian history, the path to this kind of formation has been understood as the cultivation, not just of insight and not just of skills, but of practices of practices of of habits and the way this works out in, in practices of mind of learning and contemplation practices of heart of seeking God And if searching our own selves in prayer, practices of speech, learning the ways of silence, the ways of song, practices of body, learning both self-care and self-control, practices of friendship, learning how to begin intimacy and learning where intimacy ends. Practices of service, learning to grow in both work and rest and letting love drive and govern these things. In the Christian tradition, almost without deviation, the spiritual model of formation has been these practices as they are sanctified by God and sustained over time, the belief that this is how we are formed. And so because of this, the Christian church has to devote itself right now to this theological account of formation to reordering its life toward love and to cultivating in its communities the practices of love. Because it's only when we do that that we're going to be able to become the presence of love.
0: Well, Greg, you bring it back to this concept that we keep seeing over and over again that we're to be the presence of love In an age where people maybe haven't experienced love in this way and and that the only way to become this is to cultivate it, that it requires practices in some ways, requires work, requires the kind of habits daily, weekly in our lives and our families that many people maybe haven't experienced. And and I'm going to get into some of those specific habits that you mentioned here towards the latter part of this portion of the talk. But I wanted you to describe a little bit more about what you see in our age. You, you described that people are longing for human perfection, that there's a need here to where people are are looking for something a little bit more than maybe what they're experiencing. It gives us a little bit of a clue into the human soul and and what we're always longing for.
1: Yeah. So one of the the basic movements in, in kind of early enlightenment that gave rise to our culture was this idea that human beings could become more than what we are. We could be emancipated from the kind of shackles that constrained us, and this this had intellectual implications, economic implications, et cetera, technological implications. I mean, we we could take flight, right? We could build cities and do all these things. So there was a sense of human perfectibility that was deeply embedded in uh, the in the Renaissance and in the Enlightenment, and, and has been mediated down. Through our culture, so I think that when we look at, at our own culture right now, we see that everywhere around us, we're trying to figure out what it means to be more fully ourselves or more full versions of ourselves. And I think that that impulse is incredibly important for the church to recognize that what we're what we're all longing for is a way to overcome these imperfections, to overcome these broken places and become better, greater, stronger, newer versions of ourselves. And this plays out everywhere from, you know, kind of plastic surgery to the kind of interesting developments in biotechnology to therapy and to the lies we tell about ourselves and to the way we change our Facebook profile. I mean, we're all wanting to be more beautiful versions of ourselves.
0: Yeah, and it's this current age, I guess, with technology and digital lives and the ability to kind of reshape our brands and even that discussion about branding yourself. And, you know, I, I hear from so many people graduating from college looking for that first career post, how much that's a main discussion is how do I brand myself and, and really removing personhood in lots of ways from even what their lived experience is. When we think about the models today, though, the therapeutic idea, the goal of human happiness, I mean, we we're seeing this Everywhere, And it's being fed by almost anything we watch, the music that we listen to, uh, kind of the cultural air, if we were to describe it, would perfectly be that, that the goal of life is to pursue whatever you want, whatever you desire, that's going to bring you happiness. In fact, in our research, we saw that 86% of Americans believe that's true, that to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue your desires, that
1: that will ultimately lead you to fulfillment and happiness. I think it's important to remember that when we talk about the language of the therapeutic, we're not denigrating therapy because therapy, that language at its root is the language of healing. But what we are resisting is the notion that to be healed or to be whole, as our culture says it, is to basically have exactly what you want and to have your kind of perfectly fulfilled life. Desires really matter. But sometimes you have to lay desires aside. Sometimes you have to pursue them. And I think that is all given – that's all determined by the larger obligations of love. And one of the concerns that I have right now about what we call the therapeutic culture is that there are no constraints on the self and what the self wants and desires. And that that leads to a deeply selfish and
0: broken place. Well, the sad thing was in that same research where 86 percent of Americans – felt to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. 72% of Christians, practicing Christians, believe that same statement. And I think this gets to the core of what you're talking about, that the church in many cases has adopted the spirit of the age, thinks this is actually true, thinks this will lead to happiness, and in that way we we actually don't have much else to offer to a culture who's begging the same answer that every human being pursues.
1: Yeah, I think that one of the things that we have to remember is that The goal is not simply to take your desires and make them sacred and say, I'm going to pursue them no matter what, nor is it to deny your desires and say they don't exist. I'm just going to squash them down because that leads to equally unhealthy places. The goal is to reorder your desires according to the obligations of love and say, I want to pursue these things. How do I? How do I follow what I long for, but do so in a way that accounts for God, my neighbor, and the needs of the people around me? And that that is the reordering that we're talking about in this theological model of formation. And so you talk about habits. Let's talk specifically about what what would those habits look like? I
0: think this practice actually has a lot of practices that fall under it and that can be very practical uh, for people. And in and, and any way you're willing to share just in your personal life ways in which you've seen this play out for yourself or for your family, I think it'd just be helpful for us. Uh, we talk about practices of learning and contemplation and practices of the mind. Like what, is,
1: what does that look like for you? Yeah. So but first, let me say that I think it begins with it begins with a getting a handle on how you spend your time You know, there's a great book that was written by Bernard of Clairvaux. It's called On Consideration. It was written to a pope. It's called Advice to a Pope. And the pope basically writes him and says, how am I supposed to lead? It's a complicated job, right? And the first thing Bernard says is, get control of your calendar. And I think the way that we inhabit time, the way that we spend our time, is really the foundation of this. Ordering our lives so that we have time throughout the day or throughout the night or throughout a week to tend to these different parts of our lives. So, for example... You asked about the habit of learning. For me, I realized that I was taking in different kinds of information, but I didn't have time for really constructive thought. I didn't have time to be reflective on what I was doing. I wasn't reading outside of the deadline-driven demands that I had. And so about six years ago, I said, all right, an hour a day. There will be time in my calendar, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read for the sake of growing in the mind of Christ, so I can understand more of the world, and it was just a discipline of reading—not not to teach, not to write, but to grow, and that that was just a, a part of this. That's a great example, I think, for leaders listening to this who are busy, tons of
0: demands, you know, especially pastors, where every Sunday expected to deliver a new sermon. They're consuming content for the sake of being able to produce something new every week. It can be quite a challenging environment to really carve out the time to grow. I remember talking to a mentor of mine who, as we were discussing my role and how I'm spending my time, was calling me out on the same thing to say, hey, there's no way you can lead in the kind of environment you're leading in if you haven't given time to this area of your life where you're reading and you're expanding and you have time to reflect. Whereas for me, I always thought of that as a bit of a soft skill. It's like if I have time or I'll try to do that early in the morning, I'll try to do it late at night and I'll fall asleep, you know, face planted in a book and not get very far. He was saying to me, no, you can't do your job. What God's called you to do, you can't do unless you're cultivating and planning for it and putting it in your calendar. And by the way, that's valuable. That's not a waste of time. That's not something to do in your free
1: time. You need to schedule time for it. Yeah, I think that's it's absolutely the case that in my own life and and in the life of everyone that I admire, they have understood that they don't know what they long to know, and that their job is not simply to be a translator of complex thoughts into simple thoughts for their audience. It's to grow intellectually. <laughs> it's to have your mind and your it's to grow in wisdom, and that doesn't happen on accident. We have to figure out the ways to do that, and there, there are challenges to that in everybody's life. Uh, But that has to be a priority, and that's just one of the kind of practices that I'm talking about.
0: And you talk about several other practices, practices of heart. You talk about the practices of speech, the practices of the body, so many of these practices of friendship, which we'll get to a little bit more in the next episode. But you talk about practices of service, learning to grow in both work and rest. I mean, I think in some ways these are connected, like this idea that a practice could actually be to rest. That's hard for a lot of people to conceive of in a world where, Pretty much your value seems to come on what you're able to produce, not on who you are. Christians have had a radically different view about rest since the beginning of time. Would you say that's one of the big areas we need to improve upon as a church is embodying the Sabbath and recognizing rest, not only weekly, but maybe in our daily life?
1: Yeah, that's certainly been one of the things that I've had to improve in. And I, I think that I'm not alone in this. There, there is a lot, there's a lot to do. And there's a strong impulse to feel like you are uh, making a contribution when you're working. But part of the purpose of rest, the purpose of a Sabbath, the purpose of stopping is recognizing that God is at work even when you're not at work and that he is working in you. It's also recognizing the limits of your mortality, that you can't do everything that you want to do. There's something humiliating about a Sabbath, even as there's something liberating about it. And I think cultivating this practice and saying there are lots of things I could do. Uh, lots of things I want to do, but I'm going to stop right now and be a different kind of person during this period. That Doing that week after week, year after year, forms you into a certain kind of person that knows the difference between work and rest and can choose them at the appropriate time.
0: And these are practices that are difficult to do if you're just on your own in isolation trying to keep up with this. I mean, it seems... It seems this is designed to happen in community. It's designed to happen alongside a friendship or a spouse and a community, a church community. Uh, has that been your experience that these practices, if you just strike out on your own to do these, uh, it's going to be very difficult to maintain over time?
1: My experience has been that it's easier to do in community. It's also the case that I've had to take responsibility to do it on my own. Like when I travel and I'm by myself, I still have to do the time and, and take the time to do these things. But one of the works, and we're going to talk about this later, is to create communities that are forming these habits and these virtues together. And I think that's a responsibility of households. I think it's a responsibility of churches, of friendship, you know, communities of friends to definitely say, how can we together cultivate these habits and help one another grow into these kinds of people? And what are, what are some areas in which we can
0: think more about this idea of virtue? We talk about cultivating virtue. It's a word that we haven't heard probably a lot in modern times, at least recent times. Uh, words like ethics and values have kind of risen up to where people see those as virtues, but virtues are Deeper than that, could you just describe for those who maybe haven't heard much definition of what virtue is, what you see that as?
1: Yeah, so you could think about values as things that you prioritize or aspire to. You could think about ethics as a series of either habits or you could think about it as, you know, decisions that you make at cr- critical moments. Virtues are really instincts of the heart that have to be cultivated. Think about the growth patterns of a big oak tree. Like what is that? That's, it's the basic structure of the, of the personality. And what we want to do is orient those towards what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, what is just. You could think about it as the fruit of the spirit. You could think about it as the mind of Christ. You could think about it in, in any number of ways, but the idea is that we have to grow into human beings that have these instincts that go with the grain of wisdom, with the grain of love, and how do we become those kinds of people? We can call that a virtuous person. We can call it a person of character or a person of integrity or a Christlike person. But that's the essential point is these aren't just techniques that we employ. They aren't just good decision-making processes. They're moral impulses that have to be formed into us. Is that something unique of the Christian? I mean, can
0: somebody who's not a Christian have virtue in their life uh, or is virtue something that's purely based on a belief in God, the Christian God and the pursuit of developing that kind of character in yourself?
1: I absolutely think that people who are both Christian and not Christian can cultivate certain kinds of virtues. The the people can be wise, they can be loving, they can be humble they can be self-giving. They can be faithful and kind. Uh, that's not just the providence of Christians. Uh, I think that it is the case that the distinctive of Christian virtue is that it's lived out in response to the love of the Trinity shown to us in Jesus. And it's lived out with its goal of conforming to the life of the Trinity as God lives in love in the world. And so there's a there's a different motivation and there's a different sort of orientation. But I, I, in my own experience, I've learned a ton of things from people who were not Christians, who I felt like were more virtuous than I was in particular elements of their lives. So I think there's a lot to learn. There's also something distinct about Christian virtue.
0: Yeah. And we would take that back to our last discussion about the image of God being in every human being. And so we're going to see things in other people that aren't just limited to Christians, but that any human being could express. As we move forward and think about this practice playing out. Is there a danger when we think about these practices that they just become another form of religion that we're trying to check off the task list and make sure we're keeping up and doing everything that we're supposed to do? How how do we avoid that
1: being the case? Well, I think that's a challenge all the time, uh, but I don't think it has to be a challenge In, in my own experience. In the community where I live and where I serve and my friends, the, the goal was never a, f- a form of self-perfection that we just had to achieve through these practices. It never felt like, oh, this is this burden where you have to do this in order to be a part of this community. It felt more like these are the pathways to wisdom. How can we help each other with this? And I think that the the difference between health and unhealth comes out not only in the motivation towards really working at these things, but also the way you respond to people when they fail at these things. And some of the most important moments of growth for me have been when I've failed at these practices week after week and gone back to my community and said, you know what, I didn't really know how to do this, or I didn't really want to do this this week. They continue to see their patience, their love, their care for me, which took the pressure off, right? The goal is not to achieve and earn anything from God. It is to say all things are mine in Christ. How do I respond to that and flower out? And, and here's the, here's an image that I think might be really helpful to people listening. Augustine understood sin. His phrase was curvatus in se, and what that means is a curving inward on the self. Uh, and his his image of becoming a full human being it's like imagine a flower sort of coming out. And curving back outside and flowering up. It's this this idea of being drawn out from this self-absorption outward into something more fruitful and beautiful. That has to be the ethos behind this or else this just becomes a nightmare of Excel spreadsheets where we're looking at each other's <laughs> daily practices. And, and I can tell you nobody flourishes there. Yeah.
0: I love that last point where Greg helps emphasize that, look, this isn't about checking off a to-do list and trying to manage yourself. I think that can lead us back into a place that actually isn't producing the kind of flourishing in our own life and the ability to really give ourselves away and to love our neighbors, love our community, and live this out and invite others into something that's much more of a joyous expression, where they're discovering who God's made them to be. And so as we think about these practices, let's not get too consumed with checking off the list, making sure we're absolutely delivering on every one of these practices every single day, but that we're talking about is the kind of human being that God wants us to become and the kind of communities that he wants us to be that actually can offer to the world his love in such a way that people are designed to experience it and they're longing for it. And that's the beautiful thing about this. They're longing for these kinds of things. And if we can live this out in our communities, it'll just be amazing to see what God can do with just these little acts of faithfulness along the way. Well, I thank you for joining us again for this conversation. I know we're taking a deep dive into several facets of the historic Christian faith and trying to apply it to today. And I I know it's a journey, and I know it's something that, even for myself, I have to go back and review and listen and understand and, and continue to ask God to help reveal to me, how should this be playing out in my life? Where am I missing it? And to reveal to me all the ways in which I need to incorporate more into my life, that truly helps me become the kind of follower of Christ that he's designed us to be. And so as we continue on, continue to invite people into this, catch up on previous episodes. If you want to view these talks online, you can go to qideas.org slash six practices, and you can see more there. And in addition to that, we have a Q conference in Nashville, Tennessee. We're going to be talking a lot more about these practices and these ideas and actually giving real-life examples of how are people doing this, how are people living this out in every channel of culture, in their lives, in their churches. What are some of the best practices we can learn from church communities who are working through this right now and who are trying to practice this in the face of changing times? And I want to invite you to be with us. I want you to join us. And you can learn more about this event at qideas.org. And join with us in Nashville in April, where we're going to continue this conversation and continue learning from one another about what it means to faithfully show up in the midst of a changing culture.